It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and I am so excited and happy that you made it to class this morning. I'm going to try to keep this a little bit upbeat because some of you listening for the rest of the hour may say this is the nerdiest conversation that I've listened to in a long time. And it's okay. It's okay. You know I'm a nerd for civics, but some of this information I want to impart to you and make sure that you understand and know. And, you know, nerdy conversations are good conversation. So with all of the focus on voting, particularly voting restrictions, we don't often have enough bandwidth to discuss other types of voting reforms that we should consider. And I get it. We have to get the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill passed. We need to expand early voting, mail-in voting. We need to increase funding for the actual boards of elections so that they can be properly trained and have the resources they need. We need to focus on election security. We even need to make Election Day a holiday. But there are other conversations we should have such as ballot access and breaking this dominating two-party system that we have. Believe me, it is a source of a number of different ills. We'll talk about that later. I'm planning a show for that. But have you ever considered that perhaps we should also look at our voting method? And maybe that is something that needs reforming also. Now, I'm the first to admit, I'm not completely convinced, but it's a conversation we should have. So what do I mean when I say voting method or voting system? Almost every state uses the same voting system called plurality voting. It's when we as voters go select one candidate per race on our ballot and the candidate that receives the most votes wins. It's winner takes all. Now, you may be asking, what's wrong with that? That's the voting method. My mama been voting that way. My daddy voted that way. My grandmama voted that way. If it ain't broke, why we got to tinker with it, change it or something like that. But there are other options. So here in New York City, for example, we just implemented ranked choice voting for our municipal elections. In this voting method, voters rank candidates in their order of preference. It's also used in a number of other cities across the country. There's also proportional Representation, which we'll talk about at another time. It's a system similar to, I, I think, that what creates the parliamentary system. But today, we're going to talk about another voting method called approval voting, which allows a voter to cast votes for as many candidates as they want, rather than just one. And it's not used in a lot of places. The UN uses it to elect the secretary general. It's recently passed in cities in North Dakota and Missouri. So later we're going to talk with Aaron Hamlin. He's the executive director and co-founder of the Center for Election Science. It's a nonprofit that's working to get approval voting method implemented in cities across the country. And, you know, there's some questions we have about that. What does, how does it apply to one person, one vote? When you have people voting for all of the candidates, how would that be implemented on machines or on ballots and 
things of that nature. We're going to discuss all of that with Aaron. And of course, if you have questions or concerns, you can do some deep dive and do some more research on the particular topic. Like I said, not completely convinced that we need to tinker with change voting methods in a number of different ways, but I am open to the conversation if it means increased participation and actually increased engagement. We'll see. But Aaron is, you know, kind of convincing in terms of what will happen if you're a nerd like me. But just before we take a break, I want to introduce you to another mama who will appear on the ballot in Georgia. Shout out to my fam in Georgia. Listen. Georgia is about electing women, apparently, because there are a lot of candidates to consider not only running for, say, governor or for state senate or something like that. I'm talking about the commissioner of agriculture. That's Nikita Hemingway. She's running to be the Georgia commissioner of agriculture. She's a farmer and she has a plan to eradicate child hunger and represent the interests of black farming communities. I wanted to, you know, share her vision for the Department of Agriculture in Georgia and for you to hear a little bit more about her candidacy. My name is Nikita Hemingway and I'm running to be Commissioner of Agriculture for the state of Georgia because the people of Georgia deserve better. Historically, agriculture contributes $70 billion to the economy. However, in 2021, we actually contributed $69.4 billion to the economy, which means that Georgia Ag is losing money. And it's, a, it's an issue that we don't often talk about, but it is a very important issue because diving deep under the layers, peeling back all the layers of agriculture to find out where that decline is happening, we've definitely got to get a better understanding of that. And being able to help farmers in the states become more profitable, that is a major issue where the Department of Agriculture has failed. And it's something that is near and dear to my heart and something that's very important to me. If I win my race, I will be the first African-American and woman elected to this position, not only in the state of Georgia, but nationwide. In the 200 plus years that the state of Georgia has existed, African-American farmers have contributed to the success of the state, and we have little to no representation in the areas in which it matters most. And I believe this gives an excellent opportunity with my candidacy, my platforms and policy to, bring, to shed light on this issue and also to bring representation that not only reflects all of the farmers in the state of Georgia, but gives those who have been historically disenfranchised a voice in a space where it matters most. I believe the key to growing Georgia's future is growing Georgia's economy. The key to better health is access to better quality foods. The key to just building a better life, society, climate change, all of those answers can be solved here in the Department of Agriculture. So I am excited to step up for the people in my state. I am excited to lend my expertise, my knowledge to grow and serve my community. And so this race means more to me than anything in the world right now, except my children. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of that, how does being a mom of young children impact your decision to run and, and, and quite possibly impact your decision-making in leading in this race? Yes. So, uh, 
my decision to run for um, commissioner of agriculture and being a mother really starts from the heart. Four years ago, when my husband and I decided to start a farming operation of our own, and we both have deep roots in agriculture, we knew that we wanted to build a legacy for our children, and we wanted to celebrate who we were as individuals and collectively. And so agriculture was just the natural progression for us. It's so interesting in that we were both very successful in our careers prior to this, me being an entrepreneur and a realtor, my husband working in youth sports. And so some of the challenges we faced in uh, building out that dream were somewhat unexpected. And it took somewhat of a different turn in that legacy means more than just the financial or the, the physical things that you can pass on to your children. Sometimes legacy means the ability to fight, always showing up for not just yourself, but your community. So I'm very passionate about solving the issues in the state of Georgia. The fact that one in seven children are nearly facing hunger, that bothers me. And I don't sleep well at night knowing that we have solutions here that can solve that. The fact that we we don't get proper nutrition, there are more than 1 million people who are battling diabetes and high blood pressure and a host of other health-related issues that can be solved or properly treated with better health through proper nutrition, like these are the things that weigh on my heart. So for me, it is about standing up, showing up, and that is the greatest gift I can give to my children. That is the greatest way that I can show them beyond the words of I love you, that I actually love them, and I want to build a better future for them and children like them. So lastly, there are a lot of moms running this cycle, and there are some listening who are considering running maybe this cycle or maybe next year. What advice do you have for moms considering running for public office? So my first thought, any advice that I would have for mothers who are seeking to run for office is number one, go for it. We as women have found a way to navigate life by being the multitaskers that I'd like to say we were born to be, but truthfully, we've learned how to to be. And I believe what's missing from the narrative now is that nurturer's perspective, the mindset that, you know, in order to move society forward, we must begin from this space of caring and putting people forward and or pe- putting people first. And that seems to be a gift that we as mothers tend to do on a daily basis. There are moments in my life where I have to remember to take time for me because I am often thinking about, you know, the things I need to do for my children or the things I need to do for my employees, for others. And I believe that servant mindset is innate to women, to mothers. And that's definitely equality that every leader should have, whether you're serving on county, municipal level, state level federal level, the servant mindset is very important. So for mother of young children, I want to tell you, uh, most importantly, take time for yourself. That is important. Love on your babies, spend as much time as you can. But this is the greatest tool and the greatest gift you can give them and just showing up and bringing them along for the process because you are history, you know, in the making and, and, and allowing them to be engaged and to see what you're doing for the community, it's going to help shape their perspectives on what their contributions to society should be going forward. So 
Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, Eljoy Williams. And for today's lesson, we have been discussing voting methods. Never thought you had to think about that, but yes, there are many different ways to vote. We're all familiar with the winner-takes-all system, and some of us live in cities and in communities in which we use different voting methods for the primary. But today's guest is actually working on implementing another voting method called approval voting. Aaron Hamlin is the executive director and co-founder of the Center for Election Science, a nonprofit working to get approval voting method implemented in cities across the United States. In the past three years, the organization has helped to get approval voting passed in Fargo, North Dakota, and St. Louis, Missouri, and they have a new campaign underway in Seattle. So I want to welcome to the front of the class for the first time, Aaron Hamlin. Hey, Aaron. Hi, Joy. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for bringing this to my attention. I'm, of course, aware of winner take all. I have, I'm also aware of ranked choice voting. New York City just implemented ranked choice voting for our municipal elections. And then, you know, we have caucuses and different, you know, methods, particularly as it pertains to the presidential elections. Sometimes we get the, the, the tutorial in that way. So I'm really excited to hear a little bit more about approval voting, how it can help help boost turnout, engagement. But before we get there, we're going to start where we always start, Aaron. And I want you to tell me the story of your first civic action. I think for me, like, uh, well, I, I voted the first time I had the option to, um, but I think like, I don't know, in, in some ways, like, well, I mean, it's an exciting experience. I think I didn't really appreciate a lot that was going on. And so, I mean, like everybody, I, uh, went and chose a single candidate from some selection candidates, but, um, I didn't really, I think like a lot of people just didn't really appreciate, um, what was going on at that point that like I was technically providing the least amount of information that I possibly could about those candidates, even though even at 18, I'm sure I had opinions about, uh, multiple of the candidates there, but. I didn't really get to express that. Yeah, and it's it's sort of emblematic of like every uh, a lot of experience. We've talked about this before, where you're told to like, yeah, you go register, go vote, and you're like, but vote for who and why, <laughs> like in what position. And usually, people just follow along with their parents or you know something they heard, or maybe they saw a poster or something like that, and not really having a strong center in terms of the person that I'm voting for actually have a connection with. I agree with their politics or what they their plan is for my community is based upon a lot of external things, particularly sometimes the first time you register and go and vote. So the, that's, that's a very normal <laughs> like experience that's not brought up a lot. So Erin, I want to get to the meat of our conversation and talking about approval voting. 
For someone you are talking to for the first time about what this means, how do you explain what approval voting is, what this voting method is? Yeah, so I think like a lot of times we overlook the, the voting method itself, which is just uh, the information that we put on the ballot and how that's uh, calculated. I think it's easy to kind of overlook like the whole point of this, which is we have some people who represent us and um, their view should parallel that of the, uh, of the electorate that they're representing and they've got a lot of power. I mean, they, they decide the policies that govern our day-to-day -day lives and they spend a lot of money, uh, concerning our tax dollars. And there's only one instance when they can't ignore us. And that's on election day when we're, uh, deciding whether they keep their seat or someone else takes their seat. And so it, for me, like, uh, looking at this. If, if we're getting the, our tool wrong, like our, our main tool for being able to decide who sits in those seats, if that tool is broken, then we have some pretty big uh, issues on our hands. Cause that's really the only time when they can't, uh, refuse to, to listen to us. And so right now, when we go to, to vote, we have this really limited tool, um, this choose one voting method, um, you hear it by different names, like priority voting or first past the post. Um, but it's this choose one voting method and it causes all kinds of issues. So like, if you like multiple candidates, you can't choose multiple candidates. You can't support them. You have no way to do that. And so you can only support one. And so as a consequence, the support for all those candidates gets divided and they get an artificially low amount of support. Um, this can also lead to things like more polarized, uh, winners. Uh, you don't get the same kind of consensus winner. Um, and then. Also, and I think like in 2000, um, there are some interesting candidates in that election. Also like for the presidential election, that was the election when Ralph Nader, uh, ran. And for me, like, like as a, an 18 year old kid, uh, looking at that, like, I didn't think about uh, any of that. Um, and I think part of it was the environment where you're told, uh, Hey, like these are the front runners vote for one of the front runners. If you vote for anyone else, you even think about voting for anyone else, you're going to be wasting your vote. And that's that leads to some pretty terrible things. Uh, and approval voting addresses all those things in a very simple way. So with approval voting, you simply select as many candidates as you want and the candidate with the most of the twins, you're not ranking or anything complicated. You just check as many as you want. The, the only difference on your ballot is the directions that just tell you to choose as many as you want instead of just one. And so if there are multiple candidates that you like, you can choose multiple of those candidates. Um, if there's even a third party or independent candidate that you uh, like, um, even if they don't seem viable or likely to win, you can support them. And then if, um, you, there's another candidate that you like that you think is more viable, you can support them too, or not you can do whatever you want. Uh, you just have a lot of flexibility in a way that voters are are, uh, really haven't been given the advantage for, uh, previously. So, you know, one, what does changing the voting method? And when we're talking about voting method, we're talking about how you, the voter cast your ballot, right? So are you picking one person? Are you ranking 
the people on the ballot? Are you, as Aaron just mentioned, just voting for all of the choices that you want? What does approval voting solve? People would say we've been voting with winner-takes-all system. People think it's fair. It's something we've been doing for the longest time. Why do we need to change from that standpoint? What does What problem do we have that approval voting is the answer to? So, um, I mean, this is still, I think, like within the winner-take-all system. So just like in terms of like, these are, this is being applied to single winner uh, situations. Um, th- there's like a whole other class of systems that deal with uh, multi-winner elections. Um, but within, but even with that, like these single winner elections control a lot of offices. Like you're talking about mayor, governor, president, um, the way that we do elections in the U.S. You're talking about uh U.S. House and Senate seats, same thing for the states um, across the country. And uh, like really when when we're thinking about what a voting method has to do, like what its jobs are, I, I look at evaluating a voting method in really three different characteristics. Like one is the winner selection. So are you actually getting a winner that represents the will of the people? And if a voting method isn't doing that, then it's not doing its job. And if it messes up, at least shouldn't do it, go too far away from what the ideal should be. Um, and then, uh, it should also do a good job of reflecting the accurate, um, amount of support for each candidate. And then thirdly, like it should be a, a voting method should be straightforward and easy to understand. It shouldn't, um, discriminate against voter education. So you shouldn't need a graduate degree or even a high school diploma to be able to, uh, figure out how to vote in an election. Um, and with approval voting, it really hits all three of those things in uh, a straightforward and simple way. Um, if you want to be able to support a candidate, um, like just like right now, it's very difficult to do that if that candidate isn't really projecting um, uh, herself or himself as being viable. Uh, whereas with approval voting, you like that candidate, you support that candidate, that candidate gets that, uh, get, gets that reflection support and they're not marginalized in the same way that they are now. And we've done independent studies as well. Um, and also other, uh, researchers have, have looked at this issue in terms of, um, particularly like looking at third parties and independents that under approval voting, they do vastly better, uh, under approval voting than both, uh, this choose one method that we have now, uh, which like candidates are lucky to get like one or 2% support. Uh, and also with um, ranked choice voting, the, uh, where you rank candidates and it iteratively uh, does a, a runoff uh, to uh, see who would be able to win in the final round. Uh, even in that scenario, like you still, like you see that in Maine, uh, the third parties for the last election didn't do any better than they had done previously. And so really being able to get that accurate measure of support is something that approval does simply in a way that's easy for everyone to understand. And when you have a lot of candidates in, uh, in the race, um, it still does a good job of pulling out that consensus winner because it avoids all that vote splitting that we're used to with this choose one system. 
So how how does it change besides it changing for the voter in terms of them, instead of only being able to vote for one person, they can vote for all of the people that they like. And I'm thinking of recently, I'm chair of a pack and had to interview candidates and there are like 24 people in a race <laughs> for a primary for Congress, right? And some of them have some great background and credentials and you would that you could support them all, right? But only one person can do the job. And so I can see from an instance like that, where, you know, out of the 24, you have three you really like that you would, you know, check off and say, either of these three, I would be comfortable with representing me in Congress or representing me in my local city council. How does campaigning change for candidates in an approval voting system? You know, in say, ranked choice voting, there have been times where people may link up and say, rank either of us number two, one or two, or things like that. Is that something similar that happens with approval voting? Does it fundamentally change the way a candidate can campaign? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, the the, the current system um, really encourages a lot of, of mudslinging overall. Uh, with a, with a lot of systems, uh, particularly I think uh, approval voting as well, you have a lot more incentive to really be uh, pushing yourself out there, uh, and because uh, otherwise, like if you were able to support like a bunch of different candidates, and you have one candidate among say uh, a few that you like, and that candidate is just being aggressive to everyone else, you can think like, well, like I mean, I'm not in the situation before where I'm forced to choose just one. Um, and because I can choose multiple candidates and I'm thinking like, okay, well, these other, uh, two or three candidates, uh, depending on like, what the, the race looks like, um, it looks like they represent my views well, but this other candidate that's slinging mud, mud against everyone. I don't know. Like I, I would maybe have reservations about how well that candidate would, uh, collaborate with colleagues once in, when it's in office. And so I think, uh, with approval voting, there's a, a, a better incentive uh, for candidates to be able to, uh, really do a good job, uh, sharing their platform, sharing their vision for their city, uh, for their state, for their community, um, in a way that's not incentivized with our current choose one method. I read one of your pieces on Medium, I think, where you talked about what makes a voting method good. And one of, besides, I think you said, making it simple for the voter, one of the things you highlighted was having a, quote, good winner. <laughs> what is a good winner? And you talked a little bit about that just in terms of evaluating candidates. And look, everybody wants, everybody says they want not a mudslinging candidate and like negative campaigning, but people do it because it works with a small percentage of people in terms of showing differences between candidates. But what, in your view, makes a good winner? Because that seems subjective, right? Like to force a good winner to you could be different than it is for me. Yeah, it, I, I like that. So when... When thinking about questions like this, I think it's really good to think about things from a very fundamental uh, point of view. And I think getting at that really fundamental question of what makes a good winner um, is, is an important one. So here, like we're, we're uh, a science-based organization, like my academic background is in the social sciences and a big part about science is being able to, to measure. Um, and so 
the way that we look at this problem in terms of like what makes a good winner, I think like the, the quick way to say that is someone that is a consensus style candidate, someone that appeals to the uh, broader group. It may not be a perfect fit for, for everyone, uh, but on the whole, this is the, the candidate that uh, has the broadest uh, appeal uh, for everyone um, that, that the bulk of people find um, at least uh, acceptable. Um, and also, it could also mean people are very enthusiastic about this candidate too. Uh, so the different ways that we measure this, uh, one kind of classical way in voting methods of looking at this problem is saying like, okay, well, if we could have a candidate and that candidate had head-to-head -head races with each other candidate in the race, uh, which candidate would be able to win all those head-to-head -head races? Um, now, in, in voting methods or voting theory, this candidate, uh, we technically call this a Condorcet winner, this candidate who can beat everyone else head-to-head, -head, doesn't even always exist. Um, but if they do exist, uh, or when they exist, uh, a voting method that tends to elect this candidate is, is a good one. Um, and that also may not necessarily be the candidate who has the highest um, percentage of first choice votes in that in that first round, um, which is kind of counterintuitive. Um, so, uh, so one example of a good winner is, is a candidate who can beat everyone else head to head. Uh, another example of a good winner is uh, what we might call uh, um, the uh, max utility candidate. So, um, one innovation that we've taken with analyzing voting methods is we'd we do polling and we ask respondents how uh, they would vote in different voting methods uh, for some uh, uh, selection of candidates. And then in addition to that, we would ask them, hey, if now I want you to be honest and say how you would, uh, how much you want this particular candidate to be elected on a scale of say zero to five and go ahead and do that for all the candidates. And so here we have uh, an honest uh, what we would call an honest assessment scale, which is really a control measure. And so this gives us an idea of what each individual respondent has in terms of the utility uh, level for each candidate. And you can add up all of that utility uh, or value, um, perceived value from each respondent on each of these candidates and see what that looks like from the population or the, or the uh, uh, constituency as a whole. And from that, from that group level, we can see uh, where the, the, what maxes like, what, what maximizes the utility for the entire group or that, or that community. So those are a couple of ways you can look at it from a utility based perspective. We can also look at it from this idea of uh, someone who can beat everyone else head to head. Uh, but those are a couple of ways of trying to figure out like, okay, well, when we talk about like who the best winner is, like, what does that mean? These are a couple of different ways of measuring that explicitly. Mm -hmm. So leading into that, I mentioned at the top, there are two cities so far that have implemented approval voting and you're in the midst of a campaign in Seattle right now. Talk a bit about how approval voting has been implemented. Are there any challenges to implementation, it, particularly in those two cities that are already using it? And what are some of the conversations people are asking about or some of the questions people are asking in Seattle as you're engaged in the campaign there? So the way that we implement this, we have a nationwide chapter program where uh, uh, folks who are interested in changing their voting method and increasing the democracy uh, and the value of their vote within their communities, uh, we work with them to be able to um, help them really 
be, uh, move along a path that allows them to, to, uh, run a campaign. And, uh, we did that with the folks in Fargo and St. Louis, um, in both cases there, uh, we, we work with folks on being able to support ballot initiatives. So they gather a bunch of signatures, get on the ballot, um, in both Fargo and St. Louis, um, uh, those ballot initiatives passed overwhelmingly and Fargo was 63% and St. Louis, it was 68%. The, some of the challenges, uh, often come from folks who are currently elected. Uh, so in St. Louis, actually the council itself tried to, uh, 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 well, they, they successfully passed a motion within their council to oppose the, uh, initiative for approval voting. Um, and it shouldn't be too much of a surprise because after all, they're getting elected by the current method and maybe they aren't real keen on the chances of, uh, uh, of, uh, like the risk that they would take by changing the voting method that would get them elected. Maybe they wouldn't get elected with a new voting method. And so really we don't ask them, like we ask the, the people themselves, we ask the voter because the voters are the people that we care about. And so. While a lot of our challenges come from people with existing power, we, I mean, we, we talk with them and we work with them, but ultimately like it's, it's not really them that we're looking to empower. It's the voters. And so, um, it's really their decision. And, uh, fortunately that's also where our support comes is from the uh, community itself. Uh, and some of the questions that we've gotten, like for instance, like with Seattle is, uh, thinking about like, also like, who does this benefit? Um, like what types of outcomes can we expect from this? Uh, so there are a bunch of different ways of implementing approval voting with different types of primary styles. Um, with Seattle, they would use, uh, an open primary with approval voting and then the top two go into the general election, which is the same way that St. Louis does it. Um, and in St. Louis, uh, the case previously was really challenging. There was a lot of vote splitting in the, uh, uh, black community, uh, previous to approval voting. And as a consequence, uh, the mayor who was elected, um, uh, a white, somewhat conservative, uh, woman mayor, she, uh, th during the, some of the protests in St. Louis, she actually doxed a lot of the, the protesters revealing their personal information and names. And so really was signaling that she was not so much on the side of the voters. And interestingly, right after approval voting passed in St. Louis by 68%, uh, she, uh, decided she wasn't going to run again, uh, which I guess she saw the, the writing on the wall there, um, that even as an incumbent, um, that she was actually going to need to get real support from the, the people of St. Louis and it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and as a, as a consequence there under approval voting, um, the progressive vote wasn't split. Uh, you had progressive candidates. Um, be able to move forward into the second round. Both of them had overwhelming support. And, uh, as a consequence now, uh, um, St. Louis now has its first, uh, black woman mayor, uh, for a city that can look to its mayor and see that, uh, she actually represents them, uh, because they had a voting method that allowed them to do that. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday civics. How can it be?
Welcome back to Sunday Civics. We've been talking about the various voting methods and approval voting was something I was unaware of. I thought I knew them all in terms of the different perspectives. But, you know, for folks who are considering changes, mainly a lot of the voting method changes so far have been on a local level, like municipal elections. Do you see on the horizon any potential change or how we can chip away at federal elections and in the method there. And I'm not even going to get to president because that's, you know, as I explained to people, like the presidential election is not one election. It is multi, (laughs) there's many, many elections all across the country before we get to the, the, the one general election day in November. So so the, the interesting with the approval voting is while it's kind of, I would say like newer to the game, um, the it's been moving quickly. And so we like first had to show really a proof of concept and get it implemented in its first city, which we did within a year of our funding. So we got, um, uh, approval voting implemented in, in Fargo within the year of our initial funding. Also, we hired our staff within that same year. So, uh, for, for those of you that are familiar with running organizations, that's, uh, um, that's a light speed or for space ball stands, that's a ludicrous speed. Uh, and then, uh, getting, uh, uh, St. Louis right after that. And so what we're doing here is we're, we're showing that this is possible, uh, showing this is a realistic goal and then replicating and scaling that. And as, I mean, going into like a major city, like Seattle, it's the 18th largest city in the nation. Uh, we're now preparing to move into states as well. Uh, and when you change the voting method at the state level, you also simultaneously hit federal seats as well. So you're talking about U.S. Senate seats, U.S. House seats. And I, I, I know Joy mentioned the uh, uh, maybe not uh, going into so much with presidential stuff, but you can do that when you when you run ballot initiatives at the state level. You can change the way that uh, electoral votes are are assigned. And so you can have the presidential election for that state also use approval voting. For instance, like RCB did this in, in, uh, in Maine, uh, and they now use, uh, uh, uh ranked choice voting in, uh, in Maine for presidential elections. As I pointed out before, it didn't really make a difference, uh, for the amount of support that third parties got, but they were able to use that voting method and the same for us. So when we're pushing approval voting in, uh, different states, which we will do in the future, uh, uh, perhaps, uh, not, not too long we can change the way that these Senate seats and these house seats are elected and allow all the voters to be able to, uh, use approval voting in those elections, which I think would be really cool because the, the U S has, uh, a lot of polarity within these federal seats in terms of who gets elected. And then on top of that, you just really never see a third party or independent, whereas with approval voting, um, I mean, there's kind of still have to be really strong. Uh, but they've got a shot in a way that they have never had before. And so we're really excited to see this in in federal seats. Just adding one more thing, even as someone, you know, I personally identify and not shy about, I personally identify in the current Democratic Party, but I always say that could change, right? Like it depends on politics, it depends on policy, candidates presented before me. And one of the things I'm, i really believe strongly is that the the hold that partisanship in terms of extreme parties and two you know just two camps is not a accurate reflection of people's politics in the country 
there are some people who are clearly aligned Democrat, clearly aligned Republican, but then there are, you know, millions of people who don't see their politics that way. I wonder your thoughts on even me being both feet planted in one particular party. I do think that we should sort of try to be moving the country into a place where we have representation from various political thoughts and how that is represented, particularly in member bodies, like in Congress and state legislature, and what that would do to our politics overall, if we would say by proportional representation, by approval voting and different methods, be able to vote candidates, not just based upon, oh, they're in this party or they can win or, or they have the money, so therefore they can win, but allow for various thoughts from other, quote, third parties. And they may have a rising you know, population in the country that believes or, or centered around those particular issues. And what it would do to our politics and to our governance structure overall to allow space for that. I feel like people are scared because we've only been in the either you're a Republican or a Democrat and not like how other parts of the world are governing with representation from the various political thought process. Yeah, I, I mean, right now we have, I mean, thinking about kind of like the idea of like a, a marketplace of ideas within the, the political arena, not uh, not a lot going on there, uh, unfortunately. Um, and there is, uh, and there are all the issues that like the two major parties agree on where we're not getting as much variety of, of opinion. And that does, I think, like all of us a disservice. And I mean, going back to the idea of like the, the voting method, it is a surprisingly overlooked tool to be able to think about how we get our representation. Um, and you pointing out multi-member bodies. Uh, so, I mean, in the, in the U S like there's a, a federal law that requires even like U S house seats to be elected via single member districts. And that negates the ability to be able to do proportional representation, which requires uh, multi-member elections. So. That federal law would have to be able to change to be able to do it for U.S. House seats. For U.S. Senate seats, because they're staggered uh, within state by state, that also uh, necessitates them being a single winner. Unfortunately, that's a bit harder to override because the staggering part is in the Constitution. But uh, U.S. states, like themselves within the state legislature, um, nothing's stopping them. Um, and then also city councils, uh, nothing's stopping them from being able to use uh, multi-winner proportional methods. And for, uh, for, for folks who, uh, hear that, that term and like, I don't know what that is, uh, that's okay. So the, uh, but what that is, is when like, normally when you, when you have these single winner elections, the, the idea is like to do, to get a single winner who, uh, makes up, uh, who does a great job representing the, the constituency as a whole, but when you're doing uh, a multi-winner election. You can maybe think, well, maybe the goal is a little bit different than that. So you could get, you could have like uh, a bunch of winners who look very similar and are right around that kind of consensus space. But another goal of a, a multi-winner election, say like you're talking about a legislative body, could be to have a little bit of a, of a spread, mimics the distribution or population that the governing body is supposed to be representing. So uh, mirroring their ideology, mirroring their, their makeup. Um, that can be another uh, goal 
uh, a valid goal of a multi-member body in terms of like what you want that representation to look like. And proportional methods, um, based on some of the the math that they use, get into the the details of with the, with you the, on that, it is able to mirror do, do a better job of mirroring the uh, uh, the constituency body. So making sure that people are represented uh, by people who look and uh, think like them, and and when you do that it does a much better job of electing third parties or independents. And the reason for that is because these uh, multi-winner proportional methods, what they do is they lower the threshold of support needed to be elected for an individual candidate. And third parties, I mean, by definition, have less support than the major parties. And so when you lower that threshold for what they need to get elected, it also increases the likelihood that they are able to um, take a seat. Um, the, the other component of the, about that within single winner positions is that, uh, there's this popular, uh, political science concept called Diverge's law, and it looks at two factors that are within a voting method that can predict whether a third party or independent is likely to get elected. Uh, one of those factors is that threshold, which forced representation does a good job of addressing, but you, you don't get that with any single winner election or, or winner take all election. But the other factor is kind of a psychological factor, which is just saying like, can I support a candidate who I don't know whether they're necessarily going to win and approval voting is rare in that among single winner methods, it does a really good job of that. And so, uh, you get this positive feedback loop as well, where a candidate, even if they're not perceived as viable, they bring good ideas to the table, they're able to get support and maybe they don't even win that election, but. Uh, they get more media coverage because they have a reasonable amount of support and they're able to grow with their ideas. And the idea of popular ideas being able to, to grow is not something that is really taking place as much as it should nowadays. Uh, because I mean, if particularly if you're an independent or a third party with these new ideas, you don't have the opportunity to, to grow really, uh, but with approval voting. You don't have to worry about that because you can always support your favorite with approval voting. Uh, not the case with our current system. Also, not even always the case with ranked choice voting. Uh, but approval voting lets you support these candidates, including third parties and independents. And this is something that we find really robustly uh, for these new ideas being able to thrive uh, in place where they otherwise couldn't. And I think that's something for us all to be excited about. Well, Aaron, thank you so very much for nerding out with me <laughs> on this conversation. <laughs> you know, every once in a while, I have to be a nerd. I have other political scientists on here somewhere sometimes, and they're like, are you sure you just want me to talk? And I'm like, yeah, let's, let's just talk. <laughs> so I appreciate for you accepting the invitation and being part of the conversation about that. And to give, you know, some, some thoughts, some of these are things that we've never been asked to consider, right? We've never been asked to consider the method in which we vote and whether or not there is a better system. And you as the voter, right? We always think about politics and government in general as something that happens to us. And then we only have a say-so, you know, when election time comes around, not that we have the ability to actually engage, you know, before, during, and after an election season and really fundamentally change how the system works itself. So thanks for nerding out with me. <laughs> and I look forward to seeing more conversations about approval voting. 
it's been a pleasure. And for folks who are interested in jumping aboard, you can go to electionscience.org. It's really easy to get involved and we look forward to seeing you. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you, Joy. And thanks to all of you for making it to class this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. Have a great one. Mm -hmm.